0: All right, everybody, we're in Matthew 21. So, Lord, we love your word. We ask that you speak to us. We honor it as authoritative over the house, over this church. Would you be blessed as we study, apply our minds? And would you challenge, convict us, shape us through the word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. Well, the last Sunday of the year, I wanted to try to put a bow on what I felt like God was asking from us this year, we, um, we put a big emphasis on prayer. Uh, we, I don't think it takes a lot of, a lot of insight to recognize that as a church, we have a heart to reach this low country to, we want to plant churches. We want to send missionaries. We, we believe in word and spirit church, right? Like we want to be, um, not the goofy charismatic maniacs. Um, but we also don't want to be the, the dry Bible thumpers. We want to be word and spirit, fully committed to the things of God, the things of the spirit. We want to be the kind of church that reads the scripture, preaches the scripture, knows the scripture, and ain't afraid to cast out a demon every now and then when it needs to be dealt with, right? The kind of church that loves this word and will lay their hands on you and pray for you when you're struggling with sickness. We want to be the kind of church that can teach you the scripture. And believes in the prophetic gift, believes in the gifts of the Spirit, still active today. That's what we call word and spirit church. That's what we're after. We want to plant churches that are word and spirit. I've been so thankful that Bluffton's kind of up and moving. And um but I told the elders this year, I said, um, and I'll just be honest with you, God, God willing, God willing, I just would like to spend my life here pastoring this church. And I told the elders I I'd really like to plant a few more churches and send some missionaries and continue to press this community in this region to serve Jesus faithfully. And, uh, but I told our elders, like, I don't think that we should try to step out and, and plan another church or try to step out with any big move or agenda without first making sure that we're a people of prayer and historically speaking mission evangelism and church planning, winning new regions, mission has always been fueled and driven by prayer. And so to to move that forward, the first thing we did this year is we started talking about the Moravians. The Moravians were this incredible community of people who um, began the first Protestant prayer movement. And re- remember I taught you that the Moravians, um, around 1722, they started a community called Heronhut in Germany. And this community of Moravians, they really were looking for religious freedom. There was lots of persecution and think Post-Reformation in Germany, there was a little bit of freedom. And so they came to this new region. They built a town they called Herrenhut, uh, which means the Lord's Watch. And they, at first, were super scattered, and there were so many different people with different beliefs. They just kind of fought like cats and dogs. Everybody was a heretic, and everyone was going straight to hell. And so they had a community communion service they called a love feast, And they had what they called a Pentecost, a modern Pentecost. The spirit fell upon them as they received communion and prayed together. And the entire community began to hinge around the person of Jesus and the work of the gospel. And they saw radical unity and fellowship come together. Now, they began, remember, we talked about all of this. They began a 24-hour prayer chain that lasted over 100 years. And that prayer movement birthed the first protestant missions movement and this group this the town of Heron it had about 200 homes at the time uh after as they built about 200 homes and they sent over 300 people 300 missionaries to every continent of the world except for antarctica um and impacted literally i mean i'm not exaggerating every great missions movement to come after they were impacted by this small community of people called the moravians william Carey. Uh, Hudson Taylor, pick your pick your missions movement guy, I promise you they were reading the Moravians. I promise you, John Wesley is not John Wesley without the Moravians and and they they do this thing where they teach us what what it means for intercession and mission to collide together for a community of people to commit themselves to being a praying people and then to reach the nations of the world out of the overflow. Of, of a fire of prayer burning in the center of the community. I I wanted to just take a moment today as we kind of try to tie a bow around these thoughts. I wanted to talk to you about, about a few separate things. But but one, I want to show you the daily life of, of Heron Hood, because we think so much about these missionaries that went to St. Thomas. You remember these missionaries who kind of tried to sell themselves into slavery? We had missionaries coming to Savannah, we had missionaries all over Philadelphia. Um, all over the world, people were being sent from Heron Hut. But I want to talk to you about their kind of daily life, because what shapes a church, what really creates a culture around a church, is what happens day to day. And we read stories of great churches throughout history and their great exploits and the things they did. Um, but their conquering and their victories were undergirded by a day to day living that's faithful to Jesus. And what we have in our culture, forgive me because I know I'm just talking, what we have in our culture right now in the modern church, we've been so shaped by by our larger culture and society, and we've not been shaped by the desires of Jesus for his house. We've been shaped by a culture telling us you need to go to the gym three times a week, and your kids need to be in soccer, and you need to be in public school, and do all the school things. And um, at what point does the church look at each other and say, yeah, man, you need to take care of your physical body, but when's the last time you prayed? Like we have allowed culture to tell us there are certain things we should do throughout the week, but we've not allowed the word of God to tell us that we ought to be a people committed to prayer. And so just follow me. I know I'm I know I'm feels like I'm rambling, but I promise there's a method to the madness. In Heron Hood, they would wake up at the sunrise and begin to sing. They always sang, always sang. There were choirs everywhere. They begin to sing. They started their day with a prayer meeting. They would go to work. They were actually wildly industrious. They had potters and carpenters um, and obviously farmers. So they would get to work. After work, they would sing again. They would gather and pray. Saturdays, there would be a prayer meeting. Sundays, there would be all-day worship and all-day prayer. It was very common. Heron Hood, the people were split up in small groups, usually two or three, sometimes more. It was very common to walk the streets and see two or three people gathered together reading the Bible together, confessing sin. That was a big part of what they did. They 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 were growing in their discipleship, always in Heron Hood, literally always. There were a few young people, if not multiple, being trained to be missionaries. So they were studying the scripture all day. They were in missionary training mode. This group of people, they organized their lives around their commitments concerning the gospel. Their lives were not organized around their favorite sports team, and what they believed about health or what they believed about what should happen in their, uh, their lives were organized around the gospel of Jesus. What is your life organized around? And what is the life of the church organized around? Those are solid questions. John Wesley, you remember on his way, um, from Savannah to, to England, he encounters these Moravians after, um, he kind of has his Aldersgate experience when John Wesley says, my heart was strangely uh, set ablaze. John Wesley went to Heron Hood to um, experience the Moravians. And this is what he said about Heron Hood. He said, 1738, this is the diary of John Wesley. He called it this happy place. When I visited this happy place, he said, the, the biographer says he was so impressed by what he saw that he commented in his journal. This is what Wesley said. I would have gladly spent my life there. Oh, when shall this Christianity cover the earth as the water covers the sea? I would have gladly spent my life there. This brings to focus a lot of questions about ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word where we get church. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. And when I want to look at Heronhood as kind of an example of a local church that surrounded themselves with prayer and birthed into mission, and then the hold up in the other hand, what are we as a local church and what do we want to be as a local church? When we think about, are you guys with me? Is everybody just asleep because I will throw stuff? I'll do I'll be so dramatic. When we think about church, listen to me. We oftentimes talk about the universal church, the capital C church, the church that will one day um be swept away with Jesus in the new Jerusalem to find total healing and life. And the capital C universal church is made up of, biblically speaking, local churches led by local elders, supported by local deacons who give themselves faithfully to reach their region. This is a biblical concept, the local church. Okay, I can show you this a hundred times over. Let's just do it for a minute. When Jesus writes, or Jesus speaks to John at chapters 2 through 4 of Revelation, he gives us seven letters to seven churches. And these seven local churches have unique problems, unique strengths, unique calls. And so you could look at the church at Ephesus and they were doctrinally sound, but the scripture says their love had grown cold for one another and for the gospel. So we had a kind of a a doctrine church without conviction. You could look at Smyrna and Smyrna was just being crushed with persecution. And so they had this kind of sweet maturity that was developing in the church of Smyrna as they endured persecution well. Look at Laodicea, they're lukewarm. Jesus says, I'll spit you out. And so each church has a unique call, a unique character and a unique position in their socio-cultural context, okay? When you think about the epistles, just again, use your brain for a second. As Paul writes to Corinth, I don't know, he's writing to a local church with local church problems, With local church vision and emphasis. And when you think about like Timothy preaching in Ephesus. Timothy's a local church pastor. He's pastoring Ephesus. Scary place to pastor for a 19-year-old young man. And you, you just... What are the problems at Galatia? The local church at Galatia had specific problems. And then when you start to like go down this biblical narrative. And to recognize that the capital C church that we're all a part of. Is actually pieced together... By multiple local churches with local church calls then you're forced into a theology or a doctrine about the local church i believe that every believer should be plugged into a local church you should be a part of a local church and as you're a part of a local church you are now responsible for the ethos and vision of that congregation if jesus were to speak to us with a letter like a revelation style letter what would he say about this local church to the modern church in the West, he would say, to many churches, you're not actually doing life together. You're not actually pursuing the mission of the gospel together. You just come and sit down and say, feed me. And I think Jesus would say, I'm displeased. And you you just, you're, you're forced into a biblical view of what is local church as you study the scripture. And then we're forced into the question, if the scripture teaches that we should be a part of a local church that has a unique vision call emphasis that supports the larger vision of the universal church, then the question is forced upon us, what are we as a local church? Who are we as a local church? Are we the kind of church that John Wesley would step into the room and say, I would gladly spend my life with these people? Or are we the kind of church that Jonathan Edwards, the great spiritual leaders of the past, would come in and say, oh God, what happened? What kind of church are we? When Jesus walks into the room, does he say, this is my house? Or have we so bought into the Western modern narrative concerning what church is that says everything that happens here is about how happy you feel when you leave? Or are we, are we actually invested in this gospel, invested in this mission? Is the glory of Jesus Christ the central focus of the house or is the glory of individual men and women and their gifts the focus? Oh, God forbid. So as we Talked, do you guys follow where I'm trying to go here? As so We talked about prayer and heronhood and the Moravians and the way the intercession and mission collided in this group of 300 people that literally changed the world. I was trying to say to you all year long, we too are a church. We too are a local congregation of people. And we've got to decide whether we're going to go to flow downstream with the cultural narrative concerning what church is, just this kind of entertainment factory, or we're going to have to decide... Will we be a biblical church where Jesus is the center, where we pray and fast and believe that the glory of the gospel is for the nation? What kind of church are we? And I think, and I said to our elders again, we cannot do anything else. We can't plant churches. We can't send missionaries. We can't go after the the region until we make sure first that we are a praying people, that everything we do is undergirded with prayer and the power of the Holy Ghost. By the strength of the arm, the strategies of men, men will fail. But By the power of the Spirit, there's fruit and life and peace and joy. Are you guys kind of catching what I'm trying to say today? Matthew 21. I want to read you a scripture we quoted probably 1,000 times this year. And I I promise you, I'm, I'm trying to lead us somewhere here. Matthew 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the muddy changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. The scripture goes immediately after this into this picture of Jesus stumbling upon a fig tree. And he wants fruit from the fig tree. Most scholars believe that it's actually not season for the figs to produce fruit anyway. And Jesus curses the fig tree, and it withers up. And many believe that there's actually a, a kind of dovetail to this text, where Jesus drives people out of the temple, and when he curses the fig tree, it's as if Jesus is saying that the prayerless, self-motivated kind of religiosity that's happening in Judaism right now, it is fruitless, and I want nothing to do with it. Now, what we just read is Jesus, again, entering the temple, the outer courts. And he begins to drive out people, the scripture says, who sold pigeons. Now, pigeon was the the lowest offering that could be brought. But essentially what was happening, you know this, but I'll just give it to us. Um, People were traveling to Jerusalem for the festival weeks. And if you were traveling to Jerusalem from 100 miles away, for instance, you didn't want to bring your own sacrifice, right? Nobody wants to, like, take a sheep along that, that far or carry a thing of pigeons. What most people would do is they would sell their livestock in their hometown, bring cash to the temple, and then buy a sacrifice in the outer courts of the temple to bring to the Lord. This is more convenient to carry money than to carry an animal 100 miles um, and so what we have happening in the temple is what I call Disney World syndrome, right? When you go into Disney World, you're not allowed to bring your own Coke, but they're going to charge you $20 for theirs. Um, they're coming to bring sacrifice to the Lord, but as they arrive, instead of paying a, a an actual fair price for a sacrifice, the prices are hiked up through the roof. And they're taking advantage of these people who are doing commerce now in the outer courts of the temple are taking advantage of most likely poor people who've traveled great distances to come and worship. They're exploiting people who want to worship their God. Now, Jesus walks into this setting, and the scripture reads that he expelled them out. That he drove them out. Atbalo is the Greek word every time used when Jesus cast the demon out. And so it's a strong graphic word. Jesus drives them out of the temple. And as Jesus drives them out of the temple. He utters this, he's actually quoting Isaiah 56 and he's quoting a piece of Jeremiah together. He utters this kind of prophetic phrase when he says, my house will be a house of prayer. Jeremiah 7:11, 11, um, it, it says this, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That's what Jesus called it. You've made my house a den of thieves or a den of robbers. So Jesus causes a scene. He disrupts what society calls normal. I mean, think about that for a minute. Like people had come to the temple over and over again for years. They had always paid the Disney World price for the pigeons. It was just kind of normal. And the priests and the Sadducees, the Levites, the leaders of the temple, none of them have thrown a fit about it. It just kind of is what it is. It's societally accepted to pray a jacked up price at the temple it's just commerce but jesus takes what is societally acceptable and drives it the junk out what you call normal jesus calls sickening you follow that like line of reasoning jesus says uh, in john's rendering he says zeal for the lord's house consumes him zeal passionate conviction desire for the temple of God consumed Jesus, John said, in such a way that he was forced to, to kind of violently drive out this commerce. Now, I think it's worth like pondering for a moment. Is there a chance that we've embraced a societal standard for what it means to, to worship and to come together? And is there anything that we do that would offend the nature of Jesus as we enter in to worship? I, I think there are a few things I would say right away. I think that we've allowed in the West church to be total entertainment and not, not worship worshiping the glory of God. I think we have such a low expectation for encounter with God, such a low expectation for what it means to celebrate his beauty and his majesty. We kind of mock churches that are loud. We kind of mock churches that are vocal, but Man, there's something about walking into the house of God and shouting, hallelujah, beautiful, worthy. Over the years, I've tried to lead you in affirmation. When I pray, intentionally, I'm going, Jesus, you're wonderful. Jesus, you're beautiful. Jesus, you're glorious. I'm trying to model as your pastor what it means to adore him. Because what we're here for is to adore the beauty of Jesus Christ, not to stuff your heads with information so that you could go home feeling a little better about yourself. Right? Like it's about adoring the man Jesus. I, I think that, that, that we, we are far downstream in this model of just showing up once a week, high fiving for an hour and living this kind of lackadaisical, lukewarm, milky thing. And all I can say is like, not me. Like I don't want to live that way. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm not going along with, let's just do church and feel successful and, like I, I, by God, we've only got one life to live. Don't you want to shape this region for the goal? Don't you want to reach people for Jesus? Don't you want to pray with zeal and conviction and burn with something in your belly? John Wesley saying, give me a hundred men, I care not who, who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but the God. Like I want to live that way. I think we're far downstream in, in just Southern Bible Belt, Bible Belt Church. And, and if we are, as a culture, far downstream in Southern Bible Belt Church, where we just kind of high-five and move on with our weeks, how do we from here repent and turn? And sh- is there a chance that it's still possible to shape a community in the way that Zinzendorf shaped Heronhood? Is there such a thing as really loving Jesus, doing community, honoring the early chapters of Acts where the church gathered to share meals and pray every day together and with the church in the early chapters of Acts, sent one another out to plant churches in new regions. Is that still possible? Or are we so indated with societal norms that it's so outside of reach? What do you mean? I feel like sometimes trying to cast vision for a biblical church, it falls on deaf ears because we've so seen for years this half-hearted thing. So Jesus walks in, he causes a ruckus, and then he quotes Isaiah 56, 7, which says, These I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Jesus quotes Isaiah, These I bring to my holy mountain, and I'll make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer We're all peoples. Notice first, let's just do like really simple exegesis. Notice first, Jesus calls it my house. Whose house? Not yours. Whose house? Not the preacher's. Whose house? It ain't the elder's house. It's certainly not the the house that's most successful in the world's eyes. It's his house. It must be his house. And if, logically speaking, it is his house, then I suggest that maybe he gets to decide what happens in it. You don't come in my house and tell me how to live. I wouldn't come in his and tell him. If it's his house, then he gets to defend it, which he's doing in this hour. If it's his house, he gets to shape it. And it's his table that you come to feast at. And and he gets to determine the values. When you say to our kids, as long as you live in my house, this is how you're going to live. By God, it's his house, his culture, his values, his desires, his wants. He says, this is. My house of prayer on my holy mountain. It's mine. This temple belongs to Yahweh. It's cultural function. It's ethos. It's atmosphere. What it feels like. All of that must be dictated by His word. We don't come together and say to one another, what would be more exciting? for our church family. We don't come together and say, what would be even the most successful thing for our church family to do? We have to come together, look each other in the eye and say, what does Jesus desire? What did he die for? What does he want to exist in the low country through us? What does Jesus say about church? He says, it's mine, my house. Now, it doesn't take a lot of theological work to recognize that the imagery of the temple shifts in the New Testament Um, and becomes the people of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Leave that there for me for a second, Sam. We miss this in English. It just doesn't translate. Um, We don't use pronouns the way that pronouns are used in Greek. Um, But the you here is plural. Uh, Do you not know that you, um, we would say like y'all or uh Whatever. Uh, do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? And from there, there's a couple things that like, I just want to point out kind of offhandedly. He actually doesn't say, do you not know that we are God's temple? And that's interesting because he's not talking about the universal church here. He's talking about a local church. Paul doesn't say we are God's temple. He's saying to the local church, when you gather, don't you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So if a, he'll, he'll say later that your body is the temple of the spirit. And so the imager even breaks down to individual. But here in context, Paul is saying that when a local church comes together in Corinth or on Hilton Head, we come together, we are God's temple together. He dwells with us. And if we are God's temple in this hour gathered together before the word of God to bring praise and worship, to preach the word, to declare his splendor, if we are God's house right now, then we first must submit to this idea that this house is his. Ephesians 2, verse 22, in him, you also are being built together, being built to get together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. So when we follow the imagery here, we just recognize that, that God is releasing through local Churches a manifestation of his glorious presence and his mission to see the nations of the world come to Jesus. It happens in the context of the local church. And so if he calls the temple, his temple, I think he very plainly says, I will build my church. Not I will build the elders church, not I will build so-and-so's church who likes things this way and wants the carpet this color and wants the music to be turned down just a tad. It's his church. He says, "I um, my house, pronoun my house, shall be called a house of entertainment, a house of preaching, a house of celebration, a house of social services. My house shall be called a house of prayer." Fundamentally, to the idea of church, Jesus deposits a prophetic scripture which says that churches house houses of prayer, places where you come to pray. Now, prayer is interesting because prayer is, is, is not quite the same as preaching. It's not quite the same as fellowship. Uh, church studies show that if we did more fellowship, our church would grow. They always say that. Do more fun events. Well, we have to think about not what's pleasing to the unbeliever, but what's pleasing to Jesus. And Jesus wants his house to be a place of prayer. Now, you could take that as kind of an off comment to mean that we should come in and kind of liturgically repeat a few things every Sunday and that somehow that fulfills the mission to pray. Or you can acknowledge the deeper emphasis of the text here in which Jesus is quite literally saying there are people traveling for hundreds of miles to come to this temple to worship. And you people are 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 stealing, robbing them, making financial gain off of poor, broken people coming to worship. This temple, this house it's supposed to be a place where they can come and encounter the glory of God, get a hold of the garment of Jesus, find healing and wholeness, bring sacrifices and joy. And so one scholar, commentator Nolan, says this, in Matthew's use of house of prayer, he suggests something like an authentic meeting place with God. That a house of prayer doesn't just mean that we kind of offer up kind of shallow, quick prayers. It means that the place where people gather to worship should be an authentic meeting place with the glory and the person of Jesus Christ. And the way that we authentically encounter Him is through communicating with Him through prayer. And that this includes like intercession where we pray for our city. This includes like praying for your family. This includes praying for one another. This includes praying for our, our financial well-being, praying for our physical health. Why is prayer the center? Because prayer involves an individual And God, God is at the center of prayer. So what we have so far is Jesus says, it's my house, not yours. And in my house, it will be an authentic, immediate place of prayer where people gather from all over the world to grab hold of God. People ask why we still do altar calls, why we still pray for people at the end of service. It's kind of long and it's kind of weird. Well, because we want people to grab hold of God. And and I get it might be uncomfortable because it's not what you're used to. You grew up in a church where you just the preacher finished and everybody walked out. Okay, that's fine. But here in this house, we want to get a hold of the presence of Jesus. And we still believe Jesus changes stuff. And your sickness will break. And your demonic oppression can be broken. And there's healing and life and joy to be deposited. The spirit of God is able and ready to minister to his people because it's a meeting place with God. It's not, hear me, I know I'm like on a high horse today. I, I was telling people earlier, like the, the cold just makes me mad. I don't know why, it just really, really frustrates me. And I don't know which one of you guys brought it from Ohio, but you got to bring it back, okay? Um, we we get into this thing of like, I don't, I don't really like, I don't really like altar calls or some I mean, some so and so went to the altar and he did something weird. Good God, get over it. He's probably just weird. I say that all the time. People act like weird people aren't allowed to come to church. They are. They're allowed to come to church and they're just as weird inside as they are outside. Close your eyes if it helps. But but even the weirdest of the weird are allowed to come to the altar and receive prayer and try to get a hold of because again, that's what Jesus is frustrated with. The commerce is taking advantage of and hindering individuals from being able to. Come in and touch God. He says, my house is a house of prayer for all nations. All ethnos is the Greek there. Ethnicities is where we derive that word. All ethnos, people of every tribe and tongue, red, yellow, black, and white. All ethnos obviously includes the idea. It it intends to communicate not just people of every color, but people of every financial standing, people of every problem, people of every history, tradition, they are invited to come and encounter God. Now this text is way more prophetic than you think offhand because in the temple, especially in this day, um, Gentiles had to stay in the outer courts, right? Gentiles were not. How could it be a house of prayer for all nations if Gentiles had to stay out there? There's a clear prophetic emphasis that a day is coming in which the house of God and the people of God will be a, will have a clear invitation to the mentally ill, to the poor, to the desperate, to the rich and religious, like all people are welcome to come get a hold of God in Jesus' house of prayer. Now it's really simple to read this text if you just slow down and follow it. So what he does is he drives out the, the thieves, he calls them. He declares prophetically, this is my house, and my house is a house of prayer for all nations. Get over it, it's kind of the attitude. And then immediately he turns And what does he begin to do? He starts to heal sick people. Scripture says that he starts to heal the lame. And as he's healing the lame, children start to yell, Hosanna in the highest. So we're seeing Jesus' heart for the broken, Jesus' heart for the children. Again, culturally speaking, that's not normal. Rabbis don't just come in the room and pick up kids, but Jesus seems to. And so what we find is Jesus saying, what you've made this is, is thievery and robbery, and I'm really frustrated with it. It's a house of prayer. Then he starts picking up lame people. He, healed. he starts loving on children. Children are singing praise, and he, and he likes it. And the, the 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 priests come, and they say, don't you hear what they're saying? And Jesus is out of the mouths of babes." And there's this imagery of what church should be. Like, church people, Christians, you should know how to get a hold of God in prayer. And when broken people come into the room, you ought to grab their hand, help them get a hold of God in prayer. Okay, we need to get really comfortable in prayer so that when someone comes and says, man, I'm struggling with this, I'm struggling with that, or my son's in prison, or my son's suicidal, we just grab their hand and say, let's get a hold of God right now. And if we don't know how to do that, like what do we know how to do? And And what I'm trying to sweepingly say is that the idea of local church is that local church is a place where people can be prayed for, prayed with, get a hold of God together. And part of that means, imagine this, that Sunday morning attendance cannot fulfill the entire vision of what Jesus had for church. You can't show up on Sunday, sit in the chair, watch me, I know I'm stunningly handsome, and go home and somehow call it, I'm a member of a local church. There have to be prayer meetings, period. Period. The early church prayed together every day. Um, the Moravians had a 24-hour prayer chant. So, when we stepped into this year, what I was trying to say to us is, look, I've been taught my whole life that you need to go to the gym three times a week. I've clearly not done it. Um Clearly. like, like we, say, we say things to each other like, you need to go to the dentist and see the physician. What are you doing for, for rest time and like there are social pressures to organize your lives in certain ways. I want to tell you that this Bible pressures you to organize your life around praying with the saints. And Leonard Ravenhill used to say that if the if the prayer meeting had the attendance of the of the choir meetings, if if people showed up for the choir like they showed up for prayer, he said the choirs would all fall apart. Everybody comes to music practice, but nobody comes to the prayer meeting. And so I guess what I'm saying in all of this is this. Um, for a year now, like I've really said it, and I think I can say with good conscience. I am in mean, at least three prayer meetings a week, maybe maybe four in seasons. Like, I'm I'm not just saying it. Like, I understand leadership's not just talking. Like, I'm I'm doing it too. Come on Saturday night, and you'll see me leading worship. It ain't always pretty, but it happens. Do it. Sometimes it's beautiful, <laughs> depending on how I'm feeling. Um, like, so I, I I've said it. We got to be a house of prayer. I've kind of tried to do it. I'm, I'm in and kind I've of fasted. I've done the things. And so as, as pastor, what I'm saying from here is like, I, I've kind of done my part and I've been in the meetings and I've been as faithful to the scripture, faithful to the history of the church, faithful to the desires of Jesus as I know how to be. But, but a church, again, is, is not just the pastor by right, any stretch of the imagination. We've embraced that in the modern West and that's really ridiculous. Nothing that happens here is a, is about me, except for what we're going to eat in a couple hours. That's the only thing that I have to do with. Um, so, I guess I'm saying like, I, I've done my best before God to move us from the traditional southern Bible Belt church to more of a Moravianist church that prays and believes and wants to raise missionaries and wants to plant churches. I've done my best to say to you and to our elders, we can't We can't do conquests for God. We can't do mission without first doing prayer. And at this point in the life of our congregation, like you either you either jump with me or it falls. Like our prayer meetings, the life of prayer in this church can't be Caleb every week. Like you you either participate and you get on board and you say, "Man, let's do it." Let's. I'm a member of this local church and I want this thing to be a house of prayer. I'm going to show up. I'm ready to pray. I will schedule, organize my life to have prayer at the center. Or you continue on in the Southern Bible Belt thing. And I love you. I'm not going to quit loving you. I'm just saying before God, you and I stand today. And I'm standing to the best of my ability with good conscience. that I'm trying to run this race well. And I'm asking you to be a church that can stand in response and say, us too. I'll, I'll run well. So what we have, um, Sam, give me that graphic with our primitives. Okay, we've got prayer established every day of the week at this point and so you could say like my kids got soccer and my kids got whatever and my life's so busy um make it unbusy Say i have to make money well m- make less money i don't what do you want me to say so here's the schedule i want you to take a picture you can find it online but monday nights and top of the coffee shop in bluffton at seven we'll be praying Tuesdays at 7.30, we pray in the morning here. Catch the p.m., a.m. shift here. The people that live on the island want to wake up early. We get it. Wednesday, we pray every Wednesday night here at 7 p.m. Thursday, Hilton Head, 7.30 a.m. Emma, go ahead and come for me. Friday, Bluffton, 7 p.m. Emma leads that one Saturday, Bluffton, 7 p.m. Sunday, Bluffton, 7 p.m. We have prayer every day of the week. There's a chance to gather with the church to share prayer requests, to pray for mission, to pray that God would use us for revival in our region, you have an opportunity to jump in, get behind this ministry, and say, this is going to be a part of my life. Or you can keep saying to everybody, the gym three times a week is my real New Year's resolution. Um, I think at some point in the life of every church, you either put your money where your mouth is or you don't. And I just think we're probably there. You know, and sometimes you say, put up or shut up, right? Like, it's time to make that, that move. I'm super thankful. We've had a lot of people in the church try to help us move the prayer ministry forward. Charlie Dre has helped me so much trying to move the prayer ministry forward. We take two steps back and two steps forward and three steps back sometimes, but we're to the point. We're ready to launch. Emma is going to be leading a scheduling. Emma, you can play the piano. I know you don't have to sit there and stand. Um, Emma's gonna schedule a lead worship. She's been a gift to us, so I wanted to take a minute for you to just see Emma's face. And if you're like, "Man, I want to help lead. I want to jump in. I I, I want to be there and help in any way I can," Emma's gonna be your contact. You can find her email on her website. I want you to see Emma's face, and I wanted to just take a minute and pray for Emma, and then we'll get ready to to wind down. Would you extend your hands towards towards Emma? Lord, we thank you for the gift of worship, the prophetic gift, the honesty the love for the word that Emma carries. Lord, in the coming year, we ask that you would grace her, anoint her to help organize us in a way to fulfill the vision of Jesus for his house. Pray for her great favor upon Emma's life. Bless her, Lord. Keep her. Cause your face to shine upon her. Lift your countenance to her. Be gracious. To her. Lord, use her in Jesus' name all God's people said, amen. Amen. If you'd stand to your feet, we'll get ready to close.